Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 57. This week we're talking to Chris McKay, a senior scientist at the Planetary Systems branch of NASA Ames. Chris has also spent his whole fascinating career here at Ames, focusing on the evolution of the solar system and the origin of life. He studies the way planet Earth interacts with life forms here, especially in extreme environments like Antarctica and the world's driest deserts, to help us search for life elsewhere in the solar system. Chris is also involved in planning future missions to Mars, uh, including human exploration programs and others that will visit the ocean worlds of the outer solar system. It's quite a menu of topics, and here to tell us more about his work is Chris McKay. Most of the listeners have either watched and seen you on a, either a Nova documentary or a okay, BBC great. thing. So you're, this is it's not your first rodeo, but for everybody who hasn't really gotten into, you know, who is Chris McKay? Talk a little bit about how you joined NASA, how you came to Silicon Valley. Sure, I, I came to NASA as a student, as a, on a summer internship, and uh, it was a transformational event. I it, it was long, long time ago. I drove my car out here from Colorado and wow. uh, came here for eight weeks working with uh, one of the leaders in the field of planetary science. And it was really exciting. It was great to, to come to a NASA center. It was great to, to meet the people here. And what I really liked was the work that was being done here, the research focusing on planets and life, mm -hmm. and also what you might call the people culture. Okay. Uh, I really liked the scientists here and their approach to things and their easygoing. And to me, it was such a contrast with the university. I always had a good university, great, but yeah. things were much more relaxed. There wasn't any hierarchy of me, professor, you, student. It was all, mm -hmm. we're all researchers, we're all working and together. Colleagues. Yeah, and, I, and so uh, when they suggested I come back on graduation, I just jumped at it. I didn't apply anywhere else. I oh, came, wow. <laughs> I came right here. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't gotten the position. <laughs> Uh, and I've been here ever since. Uh, they haven't been able to get rid of me. Were you working on your on a doctorate by then? And I was doing so, my PhD research, yeah. and I came here for a summer as a graduate student. Uh, and then two years later, I finished my PhD and came here as a postdoc. Uh, and uh, I really like uh, what we do, yeah. obviously. I like planetary science. I like the idea that we're searching for life on other worlds mm -hmm. and trying to understand the Earth better. And I really like the people that I worked with here. And... Uh, it's it's been a good fit, and I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm guessing your PhD was that actually in planetary science, and that just was what you started working on when you came over. Or well, well my was PhD that? was more on atmospheric science, more in Earth uh, atmosphere. Okay. And my my migration toward planetary came in the middle of my PhD program, and coming to Ames was part of that migration, and it was partly triggered by Viking landing on Mars. So uh -huh. I'm in grad school. Okay. Right? Viking uh, lands on Mars, the first landing on another planet, and its goal is to search for life. And I just thought, wow, that I'm is, in. I'm you in. That I'm is hooked. really, really amazing. And I've been sort of in that orbit ever since. And so, when you first, so when you first came, was you just picked up on that work, or just continuing what you're already working on, or how, how did that kind of morph and change once you're like now you're in the federal government, and you're a NASA employee. Right. Yeah. Well, well, what happened was I, I continued to do what you might call planetary physics. And okay. the, the guy I worked with, Jim Pollock, was a leader in the field in planetary physics. 
and working with him was really a pleasure. And I continued to do that, and I still do some of that now. But as I came to Ames, and Ames' strong background in astrobiology, even then, although we didn't call yeah. it astrobiology, there was a strong background here. I, I picked that up as well. And more and more of my time was spent studying life in extreme environments, uh, interacting with people who were working in the lab studying life, and pulling in more and more biology into my planetary physics background. So I, so I still could, I still can do the planetary physics, but <laughs> yeah. I've become more and more focused on the search for life in the astrobiology and, and Mars and Europa and Enceladus and all these worlds that look like they may have had water and mm -hmm. hence may have had life. So life has become, and the search for life has become the focus, but I, I use my training in planetary physics to support that focus. Oh, so basically understanding Earth and how our atmosphere works, and then exactly. how can you extrapolate that to right, right, right. Yeah, other Earth, worlds. Earth is the big teacher. Earth teaches yeah. us about life. It teaches us about planets. It teaches us about how they work together. And so everything we, we think about in terms of searching for life is rooted on studying of Earth. And so a lot of my time is spent going to places on Earth that are – at the edges of the habitable zone, if you will. Yeah. Going to the Antarctic dry valleys, going to the driest place on Earth, the Atacama Desert, Death Valley, uh, the top of mountains in the equator, places like that, and trying to understand life on the edge. Uh, now, this is the edge, literally, <laughs> not the cultural edge, but yes, the, exactly. the literal edge not of Aerosmith. survival. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And, and so, so talk a little bit about that. Um, so when you first joined NASA and you're working on this stuff, um, were you able to just leverage that into going to Chile, to going to Antarctica, or how do you start working that in? Well, the, the way we do it, the way the realities of being a scientist is you have to write proposals. So okay. let me take a particular example, the, the work we were doing in the Atacama Desert. It was clear that this was the driest desert on Earth. It was yeah. on my list of places that we had to go. So what I had to do is write a proposal. I write a proposal, send it to headquarters, thumbs down. <laughs> I, I revise it, send it again, thumbs down. Okay. I revise it, send it again. We got funded. We got five Excellent. years of funding. Uh, big team involving people from Ames, from Berkeley, from Louisiana State. Big expedition to the driest place on earth. Uh, we find and understand it, and it's now a significant ongoing research activity. So, so there's always a challenge of getting your ideas accepted and getting going. Yeah. But uh, but the, the interest in these places is real, and if and I don't mind writing the proposal three times if it means that we can get the program going. And every iteration, the proposal was better. Well, I mean, even as you think of NASA's Ames Research Center, it kind of goes into almost the, the fundamental difference between within NASA, a space flight center versus a research center. You know, if you think of Kennedy as launching the rockets and Houston's training the astronauts, at the end of the day, all that science has to start somewhere, whereas right. Houston, you see all over the place, the failure is not an option. For us at a research center, especially in the startup capital of the world, it's like failure is almost like a feature. You right. have to be right. able right. to fail sure. as that price of innovation. Sure, sure. And, and we see this in, for example, in the Atacama Desert. We go there thinking we're going to find a certain set of things, <laughs> and we get there, and it's really different. And so... It, I wouldn't so much call it failure as surprise. Exactly. We go there, and we have a certain set of expectations. Uh, we go there with certain hypotheses in mind, and we're surprised. And my first big surprise, for example, in the Atacama was we went there and put out a state-of-the-art weather recording station. Okay. So this will record very, very tiny levels of rain. Uh, and 
colleagues in Chile are emailing us back the results. And after a year and a half, I think something's broken because we haven't seen okay. a single drop of moisture for a year and a half. Now, we've, we've been, we had been studying dry deserts for decades. And even in places where people say, oh, it never rains here, I know that with our instrumentation, we would record lots of rain events. So I, so I went back to Chile with a whole new set of kit to replace the broken station. I got down there and tested it. It was working fine. Wow. It, it was just that dry. It was drier than the next driest place we'd ever studied by a factor of 50. And it was a complete surprise. We just hadn't appreciated how dry dry can really be <laughs> until we had taken that to data. And we were the first one to put a, a weather station in this dry core. You know, people aren't that interested in dry deserts because you can't do agriculture there and yeah. there's not much human activity there. And so we were, we were completely uh, off guard in terms of what to expect. But that was, that was interesting. And then we followed up on that, trying to understand how does the biology in these soils react to this fundamentally dry place that is so much drier than anywhere else on Earth. Uh, so so we, we are often mistaken. And, and we're often try out a certain line of research and, and we realize that we're wrong and we have to change. And that, like you say, that's a feature. It's not a problem, that's a feature. Yeah. Because that's how we learn, that's how we prepare for Surprises. And no humans are being harmed in the process. Exactly, exactly. And you're not blowing up multi-million dollar equipment. That's right. You know? It's not a, It's not big expenses. Now, I did drag a bunch of equipment <laughs> there needlessly, but yes. uh, uh, but the, the, the costs are and the implications of, of, of that learning process are small. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. And Atacama Desert is particularly interesting, you know, now of the journey to Mars and, you know, trying to understand Mars. But like, talk a little bit about how that, how, how is that an analog? Well, the, the Atacama Desert and places like it are interesting in two ways, I think. One, in they're interesting scientifically. If we're mm -hmm. going to search for life on Mars, well, let's go search for it in the Atacama. If we can't make things work and figure it out in the Atacama, we're not ready for <laughs> Mars, right? Yeah. So it's a good test of, of our, our biology and our technology. But it's also an interesting comparison in terms of the human factors. You know, we spend a lot, a lot of time in a little camp in the Atacama, or spend a, a couple months in a in a field station in the high mountains in Antarctica, and we get a sense for what it must be like to be an astronaut on Mars. And it's not at all like in the movies. It's, yeah. it's much more challenging and much more difficult. Uh, and it's the the big lesson for me personally was how much it depends on the team working together. Mm -hmm. If the team works together, obstacles can be overcome. If the team fragments in the face of obstacles, it's, it's hopeless. And that was actually one of the things I liked about the movie The Martian, yeah. is that the way that uh, it was portrayed was as a team working together. Even though there were problems, even though things went wrong, they worked together. In, ad in adversity, they came together. That, to me, is the most important lesson that I personally learned from working in these extreme environments. And I hadn't expected it. As an engineer mm -hmm. and a scientist, yeah. I expected that what determined our success in these environments was how good our gadgets worked <laughs> and how good our gear was and whether our tents were rated to minus 20 or not. That stuff is secondary. What matters most is how well the team comes together when things go bad, and they always go bad. Something's always going to go bad. And I know NASA Ames has worked on um, 
other kind of like analogs or most tests like like basalt or other kind of mock simulations and stuff like that. Yeah. Are you working on some of that stuff? Or That's right. It? I'm involved in those. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the whole effort has expanded considerably. Yeah. I couldn't possibly go on all the trips that are now being done. I'm I'm a co-I on basalt, mm-hmm. but uh, I haven't been involved directly in the field work at the site in Hawaii, and I've worked at the site in Idaho. Again, going to these places is both a scientific. Uh, investigation as well as a human factors investigation, learning how the crew will work together and how they will do uh, their research. And the the activity, the people's work in this area is getting more and more sophisticated. When I first went to the Atacama and first in the Antarctic, our approach to the human factors was rather anecdotal. You know, we were all just okay. five scientists in a tent. And so we, uh, now it's much more systematic and, and made much more relevant to future uh, planetary missions, and that's a good thing as, as we learn more. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest advantages of doing it here on Earth is you can breathe the air, <laughs> and there's like you figure there's so many logistical challenges. Um, like just thinking of the logistical challenges of you know being in one of those worlds where you know there's a delay between Earth and us, and then you know you can't breathe the air if something goes wrong. You're just trying to survive, let alone do science. Right, right, right. There, there's a few places that I've been involved in where the risk to death is of death is immediate. Wow. Working underwater in ice-covered ca- uh, lakes, so we we cut a hole in the lake and then dive underneath the ice uh, in, a, oh, wow. in, a, in a dry suit out of way, and there somewhat analogous to being on the surface of Mars, where if you do something wrong, uh, there's not much option, not much margin. And so uh, you have to be extremely careful. And, and another example, we're working in a, in a uh, cave in Mexico okay. that's extremely hot, uh, temperatures of 55 centigrade and 100% humidity in life support systems that are cooling us down. And if that breaks down, We've got five minutes to get out of the cave before we fall over. So the occasional time when our fieldwork has taken us to really life-threatening environments, we get a glimpse of what it might be like on Mars. Now we're only doing yeah. that for for a day, you know, but still, an hour. But we get a glimpse of what it must be like and what you'd have to face for a whole year on the surface of Mars. And it's going to take uh, it's going to take some mental discipline to to deal with situations like that. Yeah, you see the mix of the science and almost, for lack of a better word, like the thrill-seeking, that adrenaline rush. But then I'm sure a big part of it is like controlling that adrenaline when you're like, whoa, right, this is going right, down, but keeping right, your cool to work right, under pressure. Right, right, and making sure that your team is coordinated. And The biggest safety feature of things like that is the team is coordinated. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's having a problem, other people are there and they realize it. Uh, and it, it really goes back to the human factors. The most important safety feature I've found is the team and the human factors of the team. And so, uh, and I'm sure that's going to be the case on Mars, is the team works together, it's going to be good. If the team doesn't work together, mm-hmm. no amount of gadgets or technologies it's is going to be a replacement for that teamwork. Uh, and that's been the lesson, in some sense, the higher level lesson that I've picked up from from my limited experience in these extreme deathly environments and from these ex-Mars-like environments in general is make sure you've got a good team. So talk a little bit about your day-to-day now. What are some of the projects you're working on, have your hands in, that are, that are exciting and fun? Well, right now I'm involved in two things. One is I'm a part of the Curiosity on Mars, the rover on Mars. The data comes back. It's We've been there four years, and there's still surprises. Mm-hmm. We still have long telecons, and we still have big arguments, <laughs> uh, and that's a lot of fun. You know, we got to go do this, and this means this, no, yeah. it means that. So uh, that that 
keeps me active and interested. Uh, but uh, new opportunities are coming up in the outer solar system. Uh, discoveries of oceans on Europa and oceans on Enceladus have motivated NASA headquarters to call for new mission ideas to go out to the outer solar system and search for life there. And so I have jumped into that oh, I bet. fully, and I'm now spending the other 24 hours of the day <laughs> working on projects that will go to Enceladus and Europa. And that's a really new and exciting opportunity. It's a little more challenging than Mars. You can get to Mars in six months. Yeah. But a trip We've to... We've proven it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not bad. A trip to Saturn and to Enceladus, uh, you're in space flying for nine or ten years. Wow. So it's a whole different perspective. A mission... We are now planning missions to the outer solar system, say Enceladus, where the data won't come back for 20 years. And that forces us to think intergenerational. So we are recruiting, as part of our teams on these missions, people who are just starting their career, and we're putting in place plans to recruit people that right now are in middle school. But by the time we get there, they'll be completing their graduate work. And then we'll recruit them a couple of years before yeah. we arrive, train them and bring them up to speed. And they'll probably be the ones that will be using the latest tools and the latest approaches and bringing the innovative thinking to analyze the data. So it's kind of interesting to be forced to plan a mission that's intergenerational and know that your success depends on students that are in middle school mm -hmm. now coming through the pipeline, getting their degree, and being available to be part of our mission in 20 years. It's, it's neat. So when I go and give talks to middle school students, I look at them thinking, <laughs> you know, some of you may be analyzing the data of the mission that I'm working on now. So get doing your math. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that, that's kind of almost how NASA has been. I, I think of during the Apollo, the, Apollo, the you know, the space race to get to the moon, and how many baby boomers were inspired by that, and then exactly. that led into the shuttle program and, and continuing now. Right, right. NASA and space in general has always been an important motivation for kids, and it's always been. I've always been pleased that NASA has taken that view and seen contributing to uh, science education and math education as an important part of its mission. And that's not what I do. I'm not an educator. I'm yeah. a researcher. But I've always uh, been happy to help whenever uh, the education office or the public affairs office has needed to outreach to students because I think it's incredibly important. And here on this mission, I see it specifically. I can't do this mission that I'm trying to do without recruiting students that right now are in middle school, basically. Yeah, I imagine even just the whole, you know, NASA mission process of writing the proposals, getting some rejected, some coming back, and then once it's even approved, all the time it takes to create it, let alone to get there. Right. Um, so for folks who are listening who maybe haven't, you know, you mentioned Enceladus, you mentioned Europa, talk a little bit about Enceladus, like what makes that interesting as opposed to like other targets, other right. target, like Ceres yeah. or other things. Yeah, the, the reason Enceladus is so interesting to me is that here is this small moon of Saturn. It's only 500 kilometers across. But it clearly, evidence from Cassini clearly shows that it has an ocean underneath the ice. And even more interesting, there's cracks in the ice and the ocean is leaking out. So there's wow. a jet of water coming out. Think of it as a geyser coming out from Enceladus. And Cassini was able to fly through, the Cassini spacecraft was able to fly through those jets, analyze them, and found that there were organics in those jets. So here wow. we have an ocean with organics, so I like to call it a soup. This is uh -huh. a soup. So my question is, is it a prebiotic soup? Is, is it a soup that life could emerge in? So what we wanna do is build spacecraft that fly through that plume and search for evidence of life. Is there life 
in the plume. And, and NASA headquarters has now put out a call for mission concepts to do exactly that. That is extremely exciting. But it's very far away, and the mission will, as I said, take a long time. But all the more reason to work on it now. Wow. So, yeah, I remember you know following up and reading some stuff on on Cassini of how as it starts hitting it like it's end of life and they've really stretched that out but even when it gets to the point of you know running out of fuel when it's done it's not a matter of just like letting it float out there they're purposefully having it burn up in the atmosphere of Saturn right. so that it doesn't hit Enceladus or somewhere else and inadvertently disturb what we're hoping to find in the future. Right, right. The Cassini spacecraft has microorganisms on it. We know it. There are bugs from Earth on that spacecraft. Yeah. We don't want to contaminate that ocean on Enceladus. We know that that ocean would be habitable. If you were to take a, a little bit of dirt from Earth and put it in that ocean, the organisms in that dirt would be very happy to live there. We don't want to do that. So as the Cassini spacecraft ends its really successful, wonderfully successful wow. mission, it will be purposely steered into Saturn. And you think, well, isn't that a loss? Well, it's not really a loss. Even if it was just allowed to go derelict, eventually it would spiral into Saturn as well. So there, the there's no way we could, uh, people in the public have asked me, well, couldn't we you know, just steer it off to the outer solar system and head to the stars like Voyager or, yeah. or Pioneer. But we can't. Cassini is trapped in Saturn's gravitational well. There's no way it can escape. Mm -hmm. Its ultimate fate will be to go into Saturn, whether we, unless it crashes. Whether we and, do it on purpose right, or not. Or just wait for it to happen. And the risk is if we wait for it to happen, it might, it might small chance, but it might crash into Enceladus and contaminate it. So to avoid that risk, we're going to purposefully crash it into Saturn. But there's really no other choice. It's Cassini, once we put it in orbit around Saturn, it was no return. We can't. Mm -hmm. We did not have there's the no technology to bring it out again and, and fly on the way Voyager did. Neither the Voyagers or the Pioneers went in orbit. They just flew by. Uh -huh. And so they were never bound to Saturn. But Cassini is bound to Saturn just like Galileo was bound to Jupiter. And so ultimately, uh, it would it would go into uh, Saturn's atmosphere. It, talking about Enceladus, it got me thinking, you know, it's really far out there, out of what we would consider the habitable zone right, of planets. Right. But yet there's clearly some seismic activity if these plumes are getting thrown right. up in the air um, and then, you know, organics and like water. You know, talk a little bit like how is it that there's that activity out there in a place where you would assume it'd be a, a frozen right, rock. Right. Yeah, this you is know? a really good point. When I first got interested in astrobiology and life on other worlds, our, the scope of our investigation was limited to Earth-like planets around Absolutely. the star. So Earth and Mars and Venus were the only game in town. Yeah. As we explored the outer solar system, we realized that that was not the case. We were surprised. We discovered oceans on Europa, oceans on Enceladus, and we struggled at first to understand how could there be oceans out there so far, so cold. And the answer turns out to be tidal heating. As yeah. these small moons go around these giant planets, they get squeezed by gravity of these giant worlds, and that squeezing generates heat. Mm -hmm. So their, their oceans are warmed not by sunlight, like the Earth, but by gravitational heating. And that has uh, an, enabled large oceans and many moons. And in fact, it may be that the oceans in the universe, there's more oceans in the universe driven by tidal heating than wow. driven by sunlight. So our ocean may be actually be the oddball rather than the, than the typical case. 
Uh, so it's very exciting to understand these possibilities and to have the possibility of doing missions to follow up these discoveries and explore these oceans and to see if these oceans, like our oceans, are cradles for life as well. Yeah, because it's like, you know, we have the, the title things of it pulling back and forth. Um, the first place I'm thinking of is, you know, when we look at the Kepler data, you look at these future exoplanet, you know, right. space tele- these telescopes, always trying to focus on that habitable zone. The, you know, Venus too hot, Mars too cold, Earth just right in that Goldilocks zone. And we've it's been exciting to see how all, almost like every single star has a planet and some of them are in that habitable zone. But, you know, they could still have further, like planets that are outside of that, that through these tidal forces could still have, right, right. could possibly harbor life. Yeah, and that, that opens it, up the question, could we, bigger see, bigger. could we see moons like Europa and Enceladus around giant planets? Mm-hmm. How would we detect them? And it's an interesting question because the way we would detect Earth-like planets is by looking at the atmosphere, Yeah, right? You see oxygen and carbon dioxide and water in the atmosphere. Aha, Earth-like planet. But on Europa and on Enceladus, the interesting stuff is buried under ice. So how do you detect it? Well, there may be a way. And what's different about Europa and Enceladus, if you were cruising through the solar system looking around, Earth would look odd. Oh, look at all that oxygen. Europa and Enceladus would look odd because they are so bright. They look like a fresh snowpack. And the reason is, is because of these geyser activities, fresh snow is falling all the time. And so they are as bright as as a fresh snowfall. And they are very unusual. All the other moons out there are darker, Mm -hmm. but Enceladus and Europa are extremely bright. And so if we were looking around uh, another star, with the telescope, and we saw a giant planet, and we saw a moon around that planet, and that moon had a, a reflectance of very close to one, very, very bright, then we'd be able to say, that's a good chance that there's an ocean in that world, and it's coming out and resurfacing, there's snowfall, and that's what's making it so bright, uh, and hence it'd be a good target for an ocean. Wow. So, okay, you're, you're well. If we fall into the realm of your NASA administrator of the, for the day, or you have all of these possible worlds, you know, you had to pick one. Right. Where's Chris go. McKay right. gonna go? Right. right, right. The way I think that is, if if, the, if somebody came to me with a little rocket ship and said, "You can fly <laughs> this anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go?" I would head straight for Enceladus. Really? I would fly through that plume collect a bunch of that material and bring it back to Earth and put it in the lab and say to the lab scientists, yeah. is there life in this stuff? You know, I just flew out to 10 AU. Hopefully it didn't take more than an afternoon. <laughs> Got back to Earth and put the stuff in the lab. Is there life? I think that is the most compelling target right now. Yeah. Fly through the plume of Enceladus. We know it's got water, came from an ocean, it's got organic material, it's got biologically available nitrogen, biologically available sulfur, it's got all the elements needed for life, it's got energy sources, it's perfect. Is there life in that? That's the question I'd like to know. So I could fly, now if I could then recharge my rocket ship and go to somewhere else, the next place I'd go would be to Mars, I'd land mm. at Gale Crater where Curiosity is, but now I would go with a really deep drill. I'd drill 10 yeah. meters down below the ground, grab some of that gooey dark stuff, bring it back to the lab too, and say to the lab folks, you know, is there life in this stuff too? And if you give me a third trip. Yes, <laughs> let's keep going. I would head out to Europa, Wow. get through the ice somehow, get a sample of that water, bring it back to Earth. And then if I could get a fourth trip, <laughs> I would be out to Titan and to bring Excellent. back some really strange stuff and hope that there's life that's living wow. in a, a liquid there that's not water, it's liquid 
liquid methane. Really strange, but that's why it's on the bottom of my list because we understand life yeah. can be in water, but could it be in liquid methane? We don't know. But that it, it, at the end of those four trips, I'd be willing to say, okay, uh, I'll retire <laughs> that spacecraft, and uh, I've done I've done enough. So so you gave me one, and I asked for, and I want. Hey, four. that works. <laughs> <laughs> so excellent. So for folks who are interested, who are following you, you know, where can they look up for more information on stuff that you're working on? Well, NASA has a website, a, uh, a page. So I think if you type Chris McKay NASA, <laughs> it pops up uh, that lists uh, uh, the the papers that I publish. Most of my work is put out into scientific literature. I don't. Yeah. I don't uh, post it uh, uh, directly, but we post it through published papers. And NASA has a policy of making all of its research publicly available. So everything I've published is available not only through the scientific journals, but also at the NASA information site. Um, and so it, it's all, uh, all the work we've done, everything we do is published. It's all mm -hmm. in the public domain. It can all be accessed anywhere. And I encourage people to look at it if they're interested. Uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, and and apply to those students out there. I'd say apply for summer internships at NASA. Absolutely, it could, it could change your life. They come over here and work for you for a little bit. There you go. Yeah, and I then need the some circle help. of life continues, yeah, bringing another life. person in. That's right. And so, and also for anybody listening who ha who may have a direct question for Chris, we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley, and we're on Twitter at NASA Ames. That's a a quick way they can jumpstart, kind of get sure. around okay. before the internship. They can go ahead and ping you. Sure, and you can forward on those questions to me and I can, I can help answer. Absolutely. Sure. I, feel, I have a feeling you're going to be one of our returning Jeopardy! champions as, okay, we, as we do this. But thanks great. for coming over. You bet. My pleasure.